0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Influx, a podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society where we discuss technology, policy, politics and so much more. In 1941, the House of Lords was convened in the famous case of Liversidge v. Anderson to decide on the permissibility of a preventive detention order made by the UK government in the backdrop of an ongoing World War II. And while the majority of the judges defer to the decision of the executive, thereby upholding the order of the preventive detention, Lord Atkin registered his difference of opinion from his brother judges. And in doing so, made a very famous statement that goes like, amidst the clash of arms, the laws are not silent. And since then, till now, in all this time that we have interacted and engaged and seen legal jurisprudence develop around the world, this statement has assumed almost the form of a legal maxim, especially in times of crisis, whenever we are talking about prioritizing between preservation of a societal order and prioritizing between upholding individual rights. In our last two conversations on surveillance, this preservation of societal order has been objectives like national security and public order versus individual rights, like right to privacy. And in this episode, we'll be focusing our uh, energy on a more topical area of this conversations around surveillance, which is going to be lateral surveillance, health surveillance, versus protection of right to privacy. To help me and other listeners gather more understanding in these areas, I have with me Shweta Reddy and Meera Swaminathan, who have in the past one year contributed a lot to ongoing uh, discussions and
1: research on surveillance, data protection, and their relevant areas. Yeah, um, I'm Shweta. I've been working for the Center for Internet and Society for a year now and concentrating mostly on privacy and data protection issues with probably a touch of artificial intelligence uh, research issues.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Mira. I've been working in Center for Internet Society for over a year. And for the last one year, I have contributed in areas relating to AI. In privacy and surveillance.
0: Both of them have a considerable amount of expertise on all the issues that we are going to be talking about in this episode, which is all going to be some theoretical discussions around right to privacy, some data protection, and then some uh, conversations around socioeconomic uh, perspectives around surveillance and privacy. So, I think the first question that I would like to ask to Shweta is uh, just like an overall broad context setting question and that is regarding health surveillance so when we talk about health surveillance for example in the Arogya Setu app where uh, data is being collected what is the nature of data that the government or any authorities that are um, rolling out contact tracing apps what is the nature of data that are being collected by these apps
1: yeah so to understand the types of personal data that is being collected we should understand the purpose limitation principle It essentially means that you collect only those data points that are needed to achieve your stated objective. So in the case of the Aruge Setu app or any other contact tracing app, the primary purpose, primary objective is to, for contact tracing apps, at least you should trace uh, the contacts of the individuals uh, that have been tested positive for the virus. So in that case, most of the data that is being collected is both personal data and sensitive personal data, because health data is classified as sensitive personal data under our SPDI rules, as well as the draft, uh, 2019 draft of the uh, data protection regulation. But there is no consistency in terms of the exact types of data that is being collected by these apps in in our country alone. So we have the Aruga Setu app that works throughout the country, but then there are certain apps that have been released by states themselves, and there is no consistency among the person data that is being collected there. For example, the Aroge Setu app collects name, phone number, location through GPS and Bluetooth, uh, and profession, etc. Whereas the Kobadi app and the Maharashtra's Kavach app, ex- they collect facial biometrics and photographs too. So as of now, there is no correct way to tell that you're not supposed to correct photographs or something like that. So, so uh, the only thing that we can do is insist on uh, compliance with the purpose limitation principle. As in, if you're collecting facial biometrics, why are you collecting it? And how does that impact your uh, stated objective?
0: Right. Like you mentioned the SPDI rules and also the draft uh, data protection bill. Are these, in your opinion, sufficient laws to protect us from any um, violations or any any ways in which this data collection can be messed with? Or we also have the Puttaswami judgment, which gives us a fundamental right to privacy. Do you think, in your opinion, is this and enough protection to any citizen who might wish that his privacy is also being protected while uh, purpose limitation is being observed?
1: So we are probably one of the very few countries that have the fundamental right to privacy, but do not have an extensive data protection uh, regulation. What we have instead is the SPDI rules, which is the information technology, reasonable security practices and procedures and sensitive personal data or information rules of 2011. But the problem is uh, under the SPDI rules, government agencies do not necessarily form part of body corporates, because of which they can be exempt from application of the SPDI rules. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are exempt from complying with all of the privacy principles, because our fundamental right to privacy still stands. So even if we don't have the data protection regulation, the three-pronged test that the Puttaswamy judgment lays out, that the action must be, that any reasonable restriction to such a fundamental right of privacy the action must be uh, sanctioned by law. The action must be proportionate to le- uh, to the legitimate aim. And the extent of interference should also be proportional to the need for such interference. So the Puttaswamy judgment is enough to challenge some of the decisions that have been taken. And I think some of the organizations have already challenged that. So even though the draft data protection regulation, as of now, because it's in the draft stage, doesn't have any enforcement uh, value, the Puttaswamy judgment it should be enough to protect the rights of the individuals.
0: And in your opinion, uh, the purpose limitation clause that you mentioned is subsumed within this 3 prong proportionality test of uh, the putta Summit
1: judgment. Absolutely. And, and there is also the additional, the three-pronged test also says that the reasonable restriction must be sanctioned by law. That portion is also there in some form in the draft data protection regulation. But the purpose limitation principle still stands within the three prompts. Yes.
0: All right. So this this question I'd, I'd like to ask to Meera. You have recently authored some work on lateral surveillance. For our listeners, I'll just assume a definition of lateral surveillance, which is basically peer-to-peer monitoring. I snitch on you and you snitch on me. So that's a very um, bad simplified uh, definition of lateral surveillance. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about why it becomes so important in times of a pandemic? And what are the societal contexts within which we have to uh, consider all issues, policy and regulatory issues around lateral surveillance?
2: Yeah. No, I, in fact, I think that is the most uh, simplified and best definition because I remember someone commenting on my piece saying that this is a fancy word for snitching, <laughs> which it is because uh, surveillance in the hierarchical sense would mean a vertical relationship between the person who's watching and the person who's being watched, which is usually the state and the citizen. But what happens in lateral surveillance is that the power relation is distributed between two peers. right? So the person who's watching and the person who's being watched are at the same state. But the person who's watching and the person who's being watched usually tend to keep an eye on each other and act as an agent for the state. So this is, what is the would be the definition of lateral surveillance. And lateral surveillance was practiced for a very long time, right? In the US neighborhoods, you had like the neighborhood watch schemes, etc. But increasingly, lateral surveillance becomes an important concept, especially with the COVID setup, because we are not only scared of the disease, we're scared of the people who can bring us the disease back home, which is potentially our neighbors or our guests or whoever we come in contact with. Now, the social setting or the aspect of lateral surveillance over here is that, how much you trust the other person and how much the state exploits this particular trust. Now, a simple example of that would be Bangalore's introduction of this co- this neighborhood program called Citizenship Quarantine Squad, right? where in a community, there are two volunteers on behalf of BBMP who will inform whether the people in the neighborhood are following the uh, compulsory 14-day mandatory home quarantine or not. Now I understand that there are many violators of the home quarantine requirement, etc. But by making people the agents of the state, which seems like a very short-term solution, because now they just have to go and report. You are not looking into the long-term aspects of this. Simple things like the fact that your personal information, like your name, where you stay, your phone number, is now with other person. Another person feels responsible to collect it in order to inform you. And in general, creating a culture of suspicion. So, lateral surveillance in terms of COVID specifically becomes more important. Like, it started off during the month of April, I think. In fact, this was early in March when a PDF by the Karnataka police was released giving the Google Map location, the name, the time, the address of everybody who's returned from abroad. Right? And this PDF was first circulated by the Twitter handle and then it was taken back, of course. But then the social implications of FIT was that it, the PDF was released in all WhatsApp groups. It was in all of our people's mails, etc. already giving in the information of people out, uh, out there. So though in short term, you, you might think that it's good now I know who beside me is home quarantine or is potentially having corona. Long term, it's a huge problem because now you have personal information of people who haven't consented to giving this person information in a long term basis right i think you also
0: cited the works of uh, yuval noah harari who yeah. Said, yeah. Yeah, harari i never know how to pronounce that <laughs> right who kind of uh, like summarized this in a very nice term with, he says that short term emergency measures have become a fixture of life so there's no knowing when your neighbor will stop watching you or there's no knowing when your neighbor will stop revealing your information in the public domain right that's
2: that's where our concerns come from absolutely and the what is more problematic is we do not have answer to answer to when the pandemic will end or when all of this will stop and, and in cases yes. of that there is a presumption that this watching over or this fact that the culture of suspicion is created is for a very very long time or is for a time which is unaccounted for and these are very like immature and dangerous technologies that are passed on right in terms of applications or in terms of pdfs uh, being revealed etc and the risks of it are definitely long term and i feel of course like some of it are definitely being faced now for example stigmatization ostracization of people and by putting in labels of people who are home quarantine on their doors etc in fact there was a lady in delhi who was harassed and boycotted as well Right? So we're already facing like the negative impacts of it, but they'll definitely have more long-term impacts when people's privacy are being compromised. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, let's move on to the
0: uh, main heart of whatever we're uh, talking about, that is surveillance in times of pandemic. So we'll approach this from a data protection point of view, but we'll also try to bring in a societal point of view with this. So uh, let me ask uh, this question to Shweta right now. We have a lot of apps and we have a lot of technologies pre-existing and preceding the pandemic, which collect different sorts of health data, right? We have the smartwatch, we have the Fitbit, which collects stuff like your heart rate, which collects, I think, some to some extent, your location data and all of that. So can't an argument be made that these apps are already existing and there wasn't much and cry about it? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. So if these apps are already existing, then what's the deal with another app that's now in, in the public domain that is probably going to perpetuate a public health narrative? What's the problem with uh, like this sort of an app collecting more personal data and more health data about individuals?
1: Yeah, and I think this argument is one of the most used argument uh, as uh, it's provided as justification for additional data collection. But yes. for me at least, I think the main difference is the lawful grounds of collecting data at the first instance. So with Fitbit and with other smartwatches, the lawful ground for collecting data usually is consent. So under the data protection legi- legislation, most of the data protection legislations, you have different lawful grounds for collection of data. For example, in GDPR, apart from consent, we also have legitimate interest. Uh, and under the Indian data protection draft data protection law, we have consent, we have reasonable purposes, we have it sanctioned by law than we have for employment purposes, et cetera. So all these are uh, lawful grounds for processing data. So for Fitbit and smartwatches, I I would say that most of the times the lawful grounds for collecting data is consent, which because of which their privacy policies are scrutinized a lot. Because for consent to be considered valid, it has to be free, informed, specific, clear, and capable of being withdrawn when we see what's happening with Fitbit or smartwatches, one way to ensure that it's free, clear, and informed is by looking at the privacy policies. And of course, there is an overwhelming amount of literature on whether consent actually works. But for the sake of discussion, let's just say that it works irrespective of the power asymmetries, the information asymmetries that exist, even when we are talking about Fitbits and smartwatches. But when we move from Fitbit and smartwatch to a government sanctioned data collection program, then there is an overwhelming amount of power imbalance between the entity that is collecting data and entity that is providing consent to collect that data. So there is a very interesting uh, guidance document by the European Protection, uh, European Data Protection Board on informed consent during clinical trials. So the question of informed consent is, apart from the privacy and data protection um, literature, the question of informed consent has always remained in medical fields as well. How informed can a consent be when you actually don't understand what is happening? So, But that particular guidance document talks about informed consent from the angle of privacy and data protection and brings the entire concept back to the power imbalance between the entity seeking consent and entity giving consent. So if there is such a power imbalance, then the assumption that the consent is free and informed cannot technically be made in such kind of a scenario. So in an ideal world, when we come back to India's situation, in an ideal world, because we cannot rely on consent, If we were determined to protect the privacy of individuals and we had a data protection legislation, we would potentially use the carve-outs that are provided in data protection legislations for processing data to provide medical treatment during an epidemic like the COVID-19 pandemic that is going on right now. So despite the lack of the data protection legislation, if we go back to the three-pronged test for reasonable restriction under the Puttaswamy judgment, what we need is for that reasonable restriction to be backed by a certain legislation. So the minute that the restriction is backed by certain legislation, we can go do away with the consent part of the lawful ground of data protection legislation, because we are assuming that the law that will back this reasonable restriction is going to be drafted, keeping in mind the privacy of the individuals. So this, I believe, is one of the major differences between an between like a Fitbit and the Aruge Setu app. One of the major differences is the fact that you cannot possibly give informed consent in times of pandemic when you are extremely scared and you don't know what is happening. And, and like Mira said, uh, the Mira's lateral surveillance output points out, most of the times you are really scared and you might just download the app. So that is technically not informed consent at all. And when the government at the first instance makes the app uh, compulsory, Again, that is not uh, informed consent at all. So uh, that is why there was a very major push for the app to be backed by a certain legislation.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think another problem that related to all of this is uh, it's it's seen as a sort of a binary that, oh, public health is the most important thing right now. So let's not talk about privacy. Or I've also heard people say that privacy is a luxury in times when public health is, is in crisis, right? So I think that's also something that prompts this kind of arguments that oh we had Fitbit and smartwatch, we didn't have any problem but suddenly now that public health is in question you are bringing up privacy, issues of privacy and so on and so forth right
1: exactly so the, the again that's the thing it's as though if you don't download the app you are pro the pandemic which is an extremely outrageous thing to say uh, exactly. but that's how it's being uh, that's how it's being looked at which is extremely uh, problematic. But I do get that in in case of public health and in case of the pandemic that we are facing uh, that we are in the, that we are facing right now, there the trade-off uh, is slightly grey, right? Uh, for example, when the yeah. pandemic started, we didn't know what the virus was, we didn't know how it was spreading, and we didn't know what to do to stop it. Especially in such kind of times, there is a possibility. Uh, For example, let's go back to the purpose limitation principle that we were talking about earlier. So if we are saying that you should collect only so much data that is required for the stated objectives, but in case of a pandemic when you exactly don't know what is the connection between the data that you want to collect, which you want to hope to collect, and the uh, the connection between that and the stated objective, there is a possibility that you might end up collecting additional data points at the beginning of the pandemic. right? Because then I think you are leaning towards controlling the spread of the virus. Just because you're leaning towards the health part of the health versus privacy debate at the, at the initial stages doesn't mean that you condone uh, extremely outrageous data collection points whenever you're collecting data, which has absolutely nothing to do with the objective or if you're collecting extremely sensitive data points, when there is a least restrictive alternative available. For example, a couple of weeks or months back, because time stands still at this point, <laughs> uh, yeah. The, uh, if you wanted to visit, I think uh, temples in Andhra Pradesh opened, and if you wanted to visit the temple, you needed to take prior permission or something of that sort. And and, and to apply to go to the temple, you needed to give them your Aadhaar details. Now, for me, that is an outrageous data collection point because if you're saying, I mean, let's assume that it was being done in good faith for a second and think that, okay, based from the Aadhaar details that they were collecting, maybe they required the address. So, if in case somebody turned positive, they could go to their house and like quarantine them. But there are, there are, I could, at the top of my head, I can think of like five or six ways to collect address apart from taking the Aadhaar details. So, when there is a least restrictive alternative <laughs> available, don't Go for the outrageous data collection point. Go for the least restrictive one, because then that is the that is the balance that we want to achieve in the public health versus the privacy debate. Anyway,
0: right, exactly. And um, speaking of binaries, it's so interesting that how many kind of binaries have been created in the all the conversation that has been happening. So one is this uh, public order, uh, public health versus privacy, and another is uh, surveillance versus privacy. Right? It's it's like. Uh, Like, if I don't spy on my neighbor, then I would never know that what my neighbor is up to. And therefore, what if my neighbor is carrying coronavirus and I get infected? This is a sort of mindset that's going into fueling this uh, surveillance and neighborhood watch kind of systems. So uh, I think, Mira, you've had a very pretty interesting opinions on how this goes on to deepen already existing societal problems, right? We have seen how the pandemic has heightened already existing class inequalities and so on and so forth. But I'd really like to hear a little more on this from you.
2: Yeah, uh, so like I've written in my piece as well, uh, any implementation of public good is looked at as a binary. So there's an imaginary binary with two worst options which you have and which you have to choose. So it's either absolute surveillance or you get absolute privacy. So there's a white and black being created. And in this era of the pandemic, of course, the black is privacy. Seeing that surveillance is now essential. We have to look out on each other and look out in a very unhealthy way, of course. Not in a healthy way saying that, okay, that person probably needs care or attention or any other mental health concern, but snitch on them. okay. And the other option is, no, no, I will maintain their privacy and make sure that their identity or their details are not being revealed. Now, the problem with absolute surveillance uh, versus absolute privacy is that there are no gaps in the system that are being created. And it's very, very essential right, that you have gaps. And these gaps are basically ethical considerations which you take for vulnerable or minority groups. Now i'll give you an example what happened in south korea is that there was a bar there was a homosexual bar where there was a party sometime in april and what had happened a cluster of positive coronavirus cases came out of it now because it was an lgbtqia bar what had happened is that a lot of homophobia spread against the entire community in south korea because of that and a lot of hate speech a lot of targeted hatred and a lot of messages against them, which made the vulnerable crew feel much more vulnerable, feel like ostracized. And they were, in fact, feeling so threatened that they didn't want to even come to the health authorities to get themselves tested. So when you don't take ethical considerations for minority groups, or don't take ethical considerations for groups that are usually being excluded, then there are problems of further stigmatization that take place. In India too, right? So in a community, if you have a citizenship quarantine squad, There's so many problems about minority communities, minority religions, caste, class, which get affected if you don't take ethical considerations as to how you can protect them. For example, you don't have to state the name. You don't have to state the last name. You don't have to state the religion. If things like this are taken into consideration, or in in the case where in Delhi, where this woman got harassed, etc., you don't have to state the gender, right? So if these ethical considerations, A, first of all, should be practiced by us, one another, as neighbors, to make sure that we respect each other's privacy and make sure that their information is protected with themselves. And second, not furthered by state by introducing programs like citizenship quarantine squads or releasing PDFs, etc. So both these efforts should be stopped so that the bind- like it needn't be a black and white. And we can come to a middle point where we understand that this pandemic, we can go through it. And we can make sure that public health is also protected while not compromising on privacy.
0: Yeah, and uh, I think as a follow-up question to that, I think uh, in some of your previous interest in this kind of lateral surveillance initiatives, there was the Hello Neighbor app, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Which was kind of trying to, uh, how to uh, say, institutionalize or technologize like an initiative on lateral surveillance. So a lot of technocentrism lies in the heart of this binary, and as we, as Shweta has already covered, some of the standards in this technocentrism aren't really great. So how do you think that adds to the problem? Like that heightens the problem. There aren't any enough security standards inbuilt in the app, or similar issues with the technology that's been initiated to institutionalize the lateral service. So how do you think that heightens the
2: problem? So uh, with technocentrism, there are various problems, but one of the largest problems is, which I've always found, is that when a state is implementing it, some sort of paternalism, which is extended, saying that I know better for you to be safe. So follow this, otherwise you're not following what the state wants you to. So it starts off with that, but then now uh, Hello Neighbors yet to be released, of course, uh, like an application in which all the neighbors are, of course, voluntarily downloading the app and they have to give information about their neighbors and just basic information just like name uh i mean of course where they're staying and their phone numbers and those introduced in the form of oh no, no this is just for emergency this is just to know who are there in your neighbors who in the neighborhood or like uh, who lives beside you etc but the fact that the state is introducing it to collect data without any data protection measures or at least what we've done with our initial interviews etc without any law or without any protection or without any adequate protection specifically what happens is that you have no accountability for the data that is being collected and where it's stored or the collection or the purpose limitation etc in the pandemic of course in coronavirus times with introduction of quarantine watch uh, applications where you send selfie per hour etc or apps released by tamil nadu west bengal etc first of all there's an absence of privacy policy Right. And even if there is a privacy policy, the problem is that the transparency and openness are not properly being defined. Now, the more and more a user, because of an app, gets to know what the other neighbor is doing or where they are, the more and more they get curious, and the more is the possibility of that information being leaked, as, of course, pointed out by the French ethical hacker, etc. So adequate safeguard and protection, of course, is required, but before all that, we should ask ourselves, is it really required in the first place? Right. Uh, I think we
0: keep on coming back again and again to the lack of a data protection law, like a comprehensive data protection law. So I, I mean, I think this is something both of you can answer. Uh, and that is, suppose we had an imaginary data protection law, then what are the safeguards that, that it, it should carry to ensure that all these problems that we went over were accommodated? So. Maybe Shweta, you can go first and then we yeah, can add something
1: to it. I believe that the, the 2019 version of the draft uh, data protection regulation has enough safeguards to address the current situation If if we agree to not take into consideration the central government exemptions that are there. It is a very big if, but like you said, we are in an ideal world where we have a data protection regulation. So section 12 of the 2019 version of the data protection regulations allows the state to collect personal data, to provide medical treatment or health services to any individual during an epidemic, outbreak of a disease, or any other threat to public health, provided the state is the state is authorized by a law to do so. As I was saying earlier, I believe that if we, especially in the current situation that we are in, in the situation of a pandemic, relying on consent as the lawful ground of processing data kind of. Uh, relinquishes a lot of responsibility of the entity that is collecting data to the individual who's providing consent, because you are as you, you there is an assumption that you will read the privacy policy and you will know that it is a good enough app and you will consent. But so the the, the accountability of reading the app of ensuring that you protect your privacy is again on you. But if we start collecting data based on this section twelve of the two thousand nineteen version of the data protection regulation, the accountability moves back to the state where they can collect data only if it is authorized by law to do so, especially in the case of a pandemic as well. So this for me is one of the major safeguards that will be there if we have the data protection regulation as it stands uh, right now.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Shweta has come of the points as to why it should. And one important thing I think when I was uh, reading about criticisms of the Setu app initially is that I think the fact that it was mandated or it was made mandatory would not have been possible if a data protection regulation was present. The, f- the absence of a law or the absence of anything uh, very strict or stringent that basically says how and why your data should be collected is better if there is a proper legislation that tells you how, t- like how to go about releasing an app that collects these personal information in the first place. Now. Like, look what happened, right? They had mandated it and then they made it not compulsory. But the social uh, implications of mandating it is so long term. Like, RWAs, uh, the resident welfare associations, are still mandating Arugya Setu. I went to a parlor yesterday and they're still mandating Arugya Setu. And even airports are, despite there being a Karnataka High Court order on it. So the social implications of uh, not having a law which uh, governs privacy are much, much more long-term
1: than how it seems. Adding to that, I think the uh, it will be extremely beneficial for the other country to have an independent data protection authority. So in case you want to challenge any of the activities, any of the actions that have been taken by the state or any of the private corporations, it's much more, I believe it will be much more easier to approach the independent data protection authority than the courts, uh, because there is already this uh, uh, extremely negative connotation attached to approaching courts, which can uh, be rectified with an independent oversight body for such kind of data collection, data processing. But again, that's the problem with the 2019 version of the bill as well, where we do not know how independent the data protection authority will be. If most of the civil society comments, and I think even some of the private organizations have sent in comments with respect to the selection committee for the data protection authority, and and if that is considered, and if we move back to the 2018 version of you know, this, the selection committee for the data protection authority, I think we'll have like the best of both worlds, where it's it's going to be independent, um, which will make it much more easier to uh, expect some sort of uh, valid recourse in case of excessive collection of data by the executive and that is potentially happening right now.
0: Right. And I think uh, with uh, specific reference to approaching of courts, I think as like all three of us are, have a legal background, I think we know how uh, tedious and how long can court proceedings go on. And I think this is something everyone belonging to the profession can also agree to. So uh, approaching a court to enforce a right to privacy against something that has already happened may just provide to be counterproductive because Till by the time that the judgment rolls in, the damage might already be done, like your photo and your data can already be circulated in WhatsApp groups. And then there isn't anything that a court order will do. Yeah, and all this, uh, I think conversation is the perfect segue into the last segment of the episode, which is what can be done in absence of a data protection regime. So uh, I think uh, I'll ask this first to Mira is that uh, let's assume for a moment that uh, furthering a societal objective, in this case, that being public health, that's a legitimate state, right? It's within the power of the state to uh, preserve public health because we elect our governments to do this among other objectives. So keeping that in mind, what can a regulator do in this case to ensure that whatever the way this aim is further, that's not done in a way to compromise on rights of privacy. You've already talked about some ethical considerations and how the technology that's been built, some standards should be inbuilt within the technology itself. But uh, I was wondering if you have any other more high level uh,
2: recommendations to this point. One thing that needs to be considered, I mean with the absence of a data protection regime is that if say an application like Arogya C2 or any of these applications are being released, you need to release its best form when you're releasing it first and not keep developing it later. Because by the time the more nuanced form or the fact that Arogya Setu is having a better privacy policy two to three weeks after it's released, then the, the objective of it is not met. The fact that you need to balance both privacy and surveillance. So one thing what the regulators can do, so all this code of conduct or the betterment of privacy policy, etc., should come at the first. So the first time it's being released, if it's released in its best form, of course, that can be a, one of the best precautions that the regulators can take in order to ensure that the privacy of the people are protected. And uh, in terms of lateral surveillance, of course, and this I've written in my piece as well, saying that uh, I do not go forward to see a, any society without lateral surveillance. Of course, there will be a point where I will be knowing about my neighbors or what they are doing, etc. But instead of implementing something in negative out of it, you can have a more positive implementation with mutual care and trust. So for Citizenship Quarantine Squad, which is released in Bangalore, Instead of having to snitch on people and having to complain about something, if you had a system wherein you would support each other, or maybe you would provide, say, mental health access, or like you know, in I think uh, neighborhoods in England where they have a system wherein, say, in a street, uh, if there's a family that has no groceries and they're not able to go out, they just put a card outside that says red color, which means they're lacking groceries. So the other neighbor goes and gets groceries for them, etc. So things like that. If there are just minor changes that are made in which you just follow the basic principles of empathy to ensure that the other person is protected, a lot of it can be changed, both from the regulatory point of view and also a point of view as a citizen. Right. And in your essay, you had also mentioned that there
0: is an emotional social building objective that underlies a lot of lateral surveillance uh, initiatives, right? That building a community, knowing and caring for every member in the community. So there is is some positive... uh, positives that can come out of lateral surveillance but it depends on how the people in question are practicing
2: it. Exactly, so if you just don't treat a person who's tested positive for coronavirus as a criminal and that's the bare minimum which you can do, it's more than enough Mm -hmm. to not further the negative impacts of lateral surveillance. And to ensure that the same emotional objectives through which lateral surveillance is implemented and it's implemented more positively.
0: I think the last question that I have is for Shweta and that is uh, there is a lot of conversations about preserving information about the pandemic so that in future we can understand how information inflows and outflows are affecting public health right on top of my head I can mention that for social media platforms for example there are a lot of uh, requests and urges to them that they preserve their information regarding the the sort of removals they're doing with misinformation on their platform so that we can understand the role of misinformation in uh, furthering the pandemic or the role of misinformation in affecting the way the pandemic is shaping. And there are similar conversations in terms of uh, protecting data of individuals being affected by the pandemic so that we can study in a medical sense, we can study its effects. So do you have any suggestions as to how this can be done without uh, compromising the rights of the data subjects whose data is being collected?
1: Yes, so scientific research is going to be one of the major uh, repurposes of the data that is being collected right now. So my main concern and uh, sort of a suggestion is to take things a little bit slow and have some sort of a protocol before you start doing this protocol regarding effective data management uh, practices around the data that is that is that has already been collected and that will be collected from after the protocol is uh, notified. So I think there are two different categories of data and based on how they are being collected and the purposes for what they are being collected at the first instance is important to distinguish how they both will be treated throughout the data life cycle. So one is the data that you're collecting only for the purpose of research so when you're collecting it only for the purposes of research you when you will be seeking the informed consent you will be informing the data subject that you are collecting such data only for the purposes of this particular research and last for so long and then once it is done you will get rid of the research so this is one uh, categories of the personal data that sh- that can potentially be used for future mm-hmm. scientific research and the second is the data that you have already correct- collected based on which you collected the data at the first instance has nothing to do with the future research that you're going to do. So in this case, you are going to repurpose the data or further process the data that has already been collected. So that doesn't necessarily, so just because you've collected the data already and it's there with you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you get to do whatever you want to do with it. So essentially, you should go back to the data subject that has consented and given you the particular, uh, and given you, the particular data points and inform them of the change in purposes of processing and take their fresh consent and then tell them how long the research is going to go for, how long will the data be retained, how how will you destruct it. And it is here that uh, one of the safeguards for ensuring uh, that privacy of individuals is not impacted because of scientific research, etc., one of one of the main safeguards is uh, anonymization of data. But again, I am not a very technical person, but I do know that there is literature around how effective anonymization might potentially not be possible because of the various ways to re-identify data at this point. So even if anonymization is one of the techniques that is being used in the ideal world, like you said, if we had the data protection legislation, the regulator should give out guidance documents on what type of anonymization techniques to use and how to use them. Uh, to just ensure that organizations that are conducting some scientific research have some sort of a guidance document to refer to instead of uh, instead of referring to uh, just international best practices. Even though though the current guidance document includes those international best practices, it's always best to have a guidance document that is tailored towards the Indian audience. Uh, So that is one. It's also very important to see after the first two categories of data that i just spoke about to go back and seek consent in certain cases can be considered as a disproportionate effort to what is being done and most of the data protection legislations have like a carve out where in case there is a disproportionate effort and in in like layman's term if it's really not worth it sometimes notice is not even given to the data subject and especially in such kind of cases extra effort has to be taken by the organization that is processing the data for further purposes to ensure that even if you're not providing notice to the data subject they have no idea which means that you need to ensure that you ramp up your security to uh, you know not uh, affect the data subjects uh, civil liberties so that is the other uh, important thing to keep in mind for studying the impact
0: what i have understood and i actually noted down like a few keywords that we Went over in our detailed conversations, and those are ethics, empathy, and standards. So, looping back into my initial conversation, we're trying to balance a public health objective versus rights of privacy. What we need to incorporate in any system that is trying to balance these two objectives, we have to uh, include ethical ethical considerations. We have to include the societal realities in which these initiatives are being launched. We have to be empathetic to everyone all the data subjects. And you also have to have transparent and accountable standards inbuilt into these processes so that all the inequalities and all the realities, they're not heightened and they're not deepened by an initiative in these trying times. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. For uh, sitting down and talking with me. I've I I've had a lot of fun and I've learned a lot. Thank you. All reading materials and all all the sources that we talked about in this episode will be available in our show notes. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in for another episode and thank you so much for all the feedback that uh, you've been giving us. I think it has uh, considerably pushed us to become better and better. And uh, we'll see you next week. Thank
2: you. This episode was produced by the folks at the Center for Internet and Society. Intro music, Fish Attack by Alpha Hydra. Outro music, Palette de Bye. by Queen.